Chapter Thirty of the Alhambra: A Series of Tales and Sketches of the Moors and Spaniards by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty: Mohammed Aben Alamar, the Founder of the Alhambra. Having dealt so freely in the marvelous legends of the Alhambra, I feel as if bound to give the reader a few facts concerning its sober history or rather the history of those magnificent princes, its founder and finisher, to whom Europe is indebted for so beautiful and romantic an oriental monument. To attain these facts I descended from this region of fancy and fiction, where everything is liable to take an imaginative tint, and carried my researches among the dusty tomes of the old Jesuits' library in the university. This once-boasted repository of erudition is now a mere shadow of its former self, having been stripped of its manuscripts and rarest works by the French, while masters of Granada. Still it contains, among many ponderous tomes of polemics of the Jesuit fathers, several curious tracts of Spanish literature, and above all a number of those antiquated, dusty, parchment-bound chronicles for which I have a peculiar veneration. In this old library I have passed many delightful hours of quiet, undisturbed literary foraging, for the keys of the doors and bookcases were kindly entrusted to me, and I was left alone to rummage at my leisure, a rare indulgence in these sanctuaries of learning, which too often tantalize the thirsty student with the sight of sealed fountains of knowledge. In the course of these visits I gleaned the following particulars concerning the historical characters in question. The Moors of Granada regarded the Alhambra as a miracle of art, and had a tradition that the king who founded it dealt in magic, or at least was deeply versed in alchemy, by means of which he procured the immense sums of gold expended in its erection. A brief view of his reign will show the real secret of his wealth. The name of this monarch, as inscribed on the walls of some of the apartments, was Aben Abd Allah, i.e., the father of Abdallah but he is commonly known in Moorish history as Muhammad Aben Alamar, or Muhammad, son of Alamar, or simply Aben Alamar, for the sake of brevity. He was born in Arjona in the year of the Hegira 591 of the Christian era, 1195, of the noble family of the Bene Nassar, or children of Nasir, and no expense was spared by his parents to fit him for the high station to which the opulence and dignity of his family entitled him. The Saracens of Spain were greatly advanced in civilization. Every principal city was a seat of learning and the arts, so that it was easy to command the most enlightened instructors for a youth of rank and fortune. Aben Alamar, when he arrived at manly years, was appointed Al-Qaeda, or governor of Arjona and Hassan, and gained great popularity by his benignity and justice. Some years afterwards, on the death of Aben Hud, 
the Moorish power of Spain was broken into factions, and many places declared for Mohammed Aben Alamar. Being of a sanguine spirit and lofty ambition, he seized upon the occasion, made a circuit through the country, and was everywhere received with acclamation. It was in the year 1238 that he entered Granada amidst the enthusiastic shouts of the multitude. He was proclaimed king with every demonstration of joy, and soon became the head of the Moslems in Spain, being the first of the illustrious line of Beni Nasser that had sat upon the throne. His reign was such as to render him a blessing to his subjects. He gave the command of his various cities to such as had distinguished themselves by valour and prudence, and who seemed most acceptable to the people. He organized a vigilant police, and established rigid rules for the administration of justice. The poor and the distressed always found ready admission to his presence, and he attended personally to their assistance and redress. He erected hospitals for the blind, the aged, and infirm, and all those incapable of labor, and visited them frequently, not on set days with pomp and form, so as to give time for everything to be put in order and every abuse concealed, but suddenly and unexpectedly informing himself by actual observation and close inquiry of the treatment of the sick and the conduct of those appointed to administer to their relief. He founded schools and colleges which he visited in the same manner, inspecting personally the instruction of the youth. He established butcheries and public ovens that the people might be furnished with wholesome provisions at just and regular prices. He introduced abundant streams of water into the city erecting baths and fountains, and constructing aqueducts and canals to irrigate and fertilize the vega. By these means prosperity and abundance prevailed in this beautiful city, its gates were thronged with commerce, and its warehouses filled with the luxuries and merchandise of every clime and country. While Mahmoud Aben Alamar was ruling his fair domains thus wisely and prosperously, he was suddenly menaced by the horrors of war. The Christians at that time, profiting by the dismemberment of the Moslem power, were rapidly regaining their ancient territories. James the Conqueror had subjected all Valentia, and Ferdinand the Saint was carrying his victorious armies into Andalusia. The latter invested the city of Hain, and swore not to raise his camp until he had gained possession of the place. Mohammed Aben Alamar was conscious of the insufficiency of his means to carry on a war with the potent sovereign of Castile. Taking a sudden resolution, therefore, he repaired privately to the Christian camp, and made his unexpected appearance in the presence of King Ferdinand. In me, said he, you behold Mohammed, king of Granada. I confide in your good faith, and put myself under your protection. Take all I possess, and receive me as your vassal. So saying, he knelt and kissed the king's hand in token of submission. 
King Ferdinand was touched by this instance of confiding faith, and determined not to be outdone in generosity. He raised his late rival from the earth, and embraced him as a friend, nor would he accept the wealth he offered, but received him as a vassal, leaving him sovereign of his dominions, on condition of paying a yearly tribute, attending the Cortes as one of the nobles of the empire, and serving him in war with a certain number of horsemen. It was not long after this that Mohammed was called upon for his military services to aid King Ferdinand in his famous siege of Seville. The Moorish king sallied forth with five hundred chosen horsemen of Granada, than whom none in the world knew better how to manage the steed or wield the lance. It was a melancholy and humiliating service, however, for they had to draw the sword against their brethren of the faith. Mohammed gained a melancholy distinction by his prowess in this renowned conquest, but more true honour by the humanity which he prevailed upon Ferdinand to introduce into the usages of war. When, in 1248, the famous city of Seville surrendered to the Castilian monarch, Mohammed returned sad and full of care to his dominions. He saw the gathering ills that menaced the Moslem cause, and uttered an ejaculation often used by him in moments of anxiety and trouble. How straitened and wretched would be our life if our hope were not so spacious and extensive. When the melancholy conqueror approached his beloved Granada, the people thronged forth to see him with impatient joy, for they loved him as a benefactor. They had erected arches of triumph in honour of his martial exploits, and wherever he passed he was hailed with acclamations as El Halib, or the Conqueror. Mohammed shook his head when he heard the appellation. Vala Halib ile Allah, exclaimed he, there is no conqueror but God. From that time forward he adopted this exclamation as a motto. He inscribed it on an oblique band across his escutcheon, and it continued to be the motto of his descendants. Mohammed had purchased peace by submission to the Christian yoke, but he knew that where the elements were so discordant and the motives for hostility so deep and ancient, it could not be secure or permanent. Acting, therefore, upon an old maxim, arm thyself in peace, and clothe thyself in summer, he improved the present interval of tranquillity by fortifying his dominions and replenishing his arsenals, and by promoting those useful arts which give wealth and real power to an empire. He gave premiums and privileges to the best artisans, improved the breed of horses and other domestic animals, encouraged husbandry, and increased the natural fertility of the soil twofold by his protection, making the lonely valleys of his kingdom to bloom like gardens. He fostered also the growth and fabrication of silk until the looms of Granada surpassed even those of Syria in the fineness and beauty of their productions. He, moreover, caused the mines of gold and silver and other metals found in the mountainous regions of his dominions to be diligently worked, 
and was the first king of Granada who struck money of gold and silver with his name, taking great care that the coins should be skilfully executed. It was about this time, towards the middle of the thirteenth century, and just after his return from the siege of Seville, that he commenced the splendid palace of the Alhambra, superintending the building of it in person, mingling frequently among the artists and workmen, and directing their labours. Though thus magnificent in his works, and great in his enterprises, he was simple in his person and moderate in his enjoyments. His dress was not merely void of splendour, but so plain as not to distinguish him from his subjects. His harem boasted but few beauties, and these he visited but seldom, though they were entertained with great magnificence. His wives were daughters of the principal nobles, and were treated by him as friends and rational companions. What is more, he managed to make them live as friends with one another. He passed much of his time in his gardens, especially in those of the Alhambra, which he had stored with the rarest plants and the most beautiful and aromatic flowers. Here he delighted himself in reading histories, or in causing them to be read and related to him and sometimes, in intervals of leisure, employed himself in the instruction of his three sons, for whom he had provided the most learned and virtuous masters. As he had frankly and voluntarily offered himself a tributary vassal to Ferdinand, so he always remained loyal to his word, giving him repeated proofs of fidelity and attachment. When that renowned monarch died in Seville in 1254, Mohammed Aben Alamar sent ambassadors to condole with his successor, Alonso X, and with them a gallant train of a hundred Moorish cavaliers of distinguished rank who were to attend, each bearing a lighted taper round the royal bier, during the funeral ceremonies. This grand testimonial of respect was repeated by the Moslem monarch during the remainder of his life on each anniversary of the death of King Ferdinand el Santo, when the hundred Moorish knights repaired from Granada to Seville and took their stations with lighted tapers in the centre of the sumptuous cathedral round the cenotaph of the illustrious deceased. Mohammed Aben Alamar retained his faculties and vigour to an advanced age. In his seventy-ninth year he took the field on horseback, accompanied by the flower of his chivalry, to resist an invasion of his territories. As the army sallied forth from Granada, one of the principal adalides, or guides, who rode in the advance, accidentally broke his lance against the arch of the gate. The counsellors of the king, alarmed by this circumstance, which was considered an evil omen, entreated him to return. Their supplications were in vain. The king persisted, and at noontide the omen, say the Moorish chroniclers, was fatally fulfilled. Mohammed was suddenly struck with illness, and had nearly fallen from his horse. He was placed on a litter and borne back towards Granada, 
but his illness increased to such a degree that they were obliged to pitch his tent in the Vega. His physicians were filled with consternation, not knowing what remedy to prescribe. In a few hours he died, vomiting blood and in violent convulsions. The Castilian prince, Don Philip, brother of Alonzo X, was by his side when he expired. His body was embalmed, enclosed in a silver coffin, and buried in the Alhambra, in a sepulchre of precious marble, amidst the unfeigned lamentations of his subjects, who bewailed him as a parent. Such was the enlightened patriot prince, who founded the Alhambra, whose name remains emblazoned among its most delicate and graceful ornaments, and whose memory is calculated to inspire the loftiest associations in those who tread these fading scenes of his magnificence and glory. Though his undertakings were vast, and his expenditures immense, yet his treasury was always full, and this seeming contradiction gave rise to the story that he was versed in magic art, and possessed of the secret for transmuting baser metals into gold. Those who have attended to his domestic policy, as here set forth, will easily understand the natural magic and simple alchemy which made his ample treasury to overflow. End of chapter 30